There are miracles taking place in the house. I know God's touching lives this morning. Can you just lift your hands for just a moment where you're at? Father, we just, let's just give him thanks. Lord, we want to thank you this morning for your faithfulness, for your goodness, for your mercies, Lord. Your mercies, Lord, are new every morning. And on this, this Palm Sunday, Lord, we, we want to give you, Lord, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the glory and the honor and the praise, because you're worthy, Jesus. We crown you. We adore you. We magnify you, Jesus, in this place. Thank you, Lord. You alone deserve the glory, Lord. And we love you, Jesus. Come on, just tell him you love him. Just tell him you love him, church. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. We love you. Faithful, 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 Jesus. Oh, you never fail. You never fail. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Thank you, uh, worship team. Appreciate you guys. What a time in the presence of the Lord. That's what it's about, is it not? That's what it's about. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 21 this morning. I had this message at about two in the morning last night. The Lord switched the title. I love that. God's timing so good. I think he's on a different uh, time zone. But, um, but he switched it to a significant Sunday. Turn to somebody and say it's a significant Sunday for you. And... Uh, I believe God has something significant to do in our lives today. I hope you do too. And you didn't just come to listen to me blabber. But your hearts are open as God wants to speak this morning to you. And on this amazing Palm Sunday, and I want to say I apologize. We didn't get palms this year. We will get them next year. Come on. Some of you are like, hey, I miss the palms, right? Come on. So that's on me. That's on Pastor for missing that one. But we will get it uh, because it's such an amazing day to celebrate God and, and his victory. And how many know this? You have significant days in your life that you can look back on. Pivotal days in your life that change the course of your life or that determine the destiny and route for your life. And some for good, some for bad, Right. I look back on the significant day of when the Lord really got hold of my life and I was transformed and touched by his love in such a way I could, I could never go back to the old way. Anybody, anybody, anybody had that day in your life? Come on. That's worth celebrating. I remember the day when he showed me that he, wanted, he was calling me into his ministry, into his, call, into, my, into his calling for my life. I'll never forget that day. Some of you, that's today. Some of you, that's today. I remember the day I got married. Come on, that was a beautiful, amazing day, a significant day. Then when my first child showed up, that was a significant day, and I'm like, oh my goodness, you made me responsible for this beautiful person. And the love that emanated and just the, the emotions that I felt looking in the eyes of, that, of my beautiful daughter. And then my son, what a... 
What an amazing privilege to be a father. But so many significant days. I look back at some of the significant days in our history, 9-11, and we never forget where we're at or, or what, what happened on that day or what you experienced on that day. But we all have significant days. And, and when we think about Palm Sunday, this is truly celebrating one of the most significant Sundays in the history of mankind. I think next week might, charge, might, might uh, trump it, but... But it's a significant day, and I, I think we, as we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus on the first day of this holy week, I believe the Lord is looking to enter in once again into our lives. He's, he's coming to his church. He is coming to us once again. And I think there needs to be an expectancy and a readiness and a praise that it's going to come out of the people of God that's going to make way for the king to do what he wants to do. Amen. And we celebrate that day when he came into the city of Jerusalem as declaring himself the Messiah, that even while they praised him that day, there would be a day four or five days later when they would say, crucify him. But... When you look at the triumphal entry, and this, this, this account is in four, all four of the Gospels. Now think about it, there's 89 chapters across all four Gospels. Only four of them account for the first 30 years of Jesus' life. Pretty remarkable, right? 29, a third of those chapters account for this week. It's a significant week. 30, 30, nearly 30 chapters account for this. And so we, we look at the significance of what happens this week in the life of Jesus. And, you know, I want to I set the stage as we look at this, chap, this, this account in Matthew. That, you know, Jesus has, on Saturday, the day before that Sunday, had arrived in Bethany. And he was with his favorite family, one of his favorite families. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. He's come back to see Mary, Lazarus, and and Martha, and he's, been, he's had his feet anointed by Mary. And, and the crowds have, have learned of Lazarus' resurrection, and they're kind of excited about it. How many know miracles bring some crowds? And they're excited, and they want to come see, and they show up at his house. So there's a crowd that's following him in there. And, and, and in this, right, the Pharisees and the chief priests are getting quite upset because their power is at risk. Their power and their control and, and their positions of authority are, are, are feeling threatened by this man at, from Nazareth who is doing miracles and who is gathering quite a following at this point. And so they've determined they will kill him. Worse yet, poor Lazarus, man, I, he just got raised from the dead, but now they want to kill him. And so it's at this moment, right? And, and we know that up to this point, Jesus has been asked to go make public showings and to declare himself. And he says, my time has not come. But here it is now, his time has come. Because there's a Kairos time. There's a time when things come together, when Jesus is about to reveal himself. And it's in accordance with God's plan and his timing for history. And so as we, do, as we look at that, let's go to Matthew 21 and understand the setting 
Here in Jerusalem, there were three major feasts each year that the, the Jews were required to come to, those who were in the vicinity surrounding Jerusalem. And one of them was uh, Passover and then Pentecost and then the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's the week of Passover. They're coming into the city and there's crowds from all over, including Galilee. And that some, some commentators estimate there might have been 2.7 million people in the city. And if you've been to Jerusalem, those are narrow city streets. I mean, you can imagine, I mean, they, they think there might have been as many as 3,000 who were following him that day. So that's the setting. And now Jesus is, is, is preparing to reveal himself. And it says in verse 1, Matthew 21, say amen if you're there. I know you're cheating. It's behind me. When they, when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples to, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord, somebody say, The Lord, Lord. has need of them. Has, has need of them. That was, you were supposed to repeat that, but that's good. And immediately he will send them. So four things I want to call out this morning about this passage, about this story, and that is the preparation, the promise, the procession, and the praise. And there's significance in all of them that I think are significant to our lives. I, when you look at what Jesus asked these disciples to do, he sends the two disciples to go and get this colt and, 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 and its mother, right? And in Matthew is the only place it records that it was both the mother and the colt, but it's irrelevant. He rode the colt. And this assignment, so I want you to see the significance in the assignment. Come on, husbands, how many have had some gopher assignments? Yep. Honey, go, would you go for this? Would you go for that? Would you go for this? Right? You've had some gopher assignments, right? This was not one of those. This was a significant assignment, even though they may not have understood what was going on. So he tells them to go to this village, and then there would be a, a they would be this donkey and its mother would be tied up, and then they were to loose the, the donkey and bring him, him to Jesus. And we don't see anything from the disciples. They're not questioning why, what is the purpose of this. They just obeyed. I want you to get this. They just obeyed. And I think sometimes we fail to see the significance of the assignments in our life. Because God is going to give you assignments. I know students are just cringing over here because they hear the word assignments. Like, no, I got enough. My plate's full. But when he gives us an assignment, it's for a purpose, and there's, there's destiny at stake. There's destiny at stake when there's an assignment in your life. The enemy's got assignments, too. He tries to put on you. But God's assignments come with purpose and they are significant. They didn't understand the significance, but they obeyed. And I, I think of the story, and I hope I get this right. I couldn't find all the details, but when you look at the beginning of 
Billy Graham's ministry. His most significant turning point was in 1949 when he had this crusade in L.A. And he lined up 6,000 chairs and he was ready to have this crusade, but he was getting no media attention. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to him, there was a maid in the house of William Hurst who owned most of the newspapers in that time. And this was a Holy Ghost-filled, God-fearing woman. And God began to give her an assignment. He said, you get, I need you to talk to Mr. Hurst about Graham. I need you to say something to him and get him to help Billy Graham. She had never talked to him. She was in the house, but she had not really had conversations with him, is my understanding. And so she built up this courage, and she prayed, and she, she walked into his office. She says, sir, have you heard of Billy Graham? He needs some help. And when they record history, they look back and they go, it was inexplicable, but William Hurst somehow put out a telegram to all of the newspapers saying, Puff Graham. Puff Graham. And that brought media attention. And what was meant to be a three-week crusade who they, and with, without any un, you know, unknown about how many would show up, ended up being eight weeks with thousands saved. How many know that that little assignment was not insignificant? Just as this assignment for these disciples was not insignificant. So there's the significant assignment in the preparation, but then there's the significant selection. Turn to somebody and say, we're going to learn something from a donkey this morning. So three of the gospel writers record this story of the donkey being selected. Jesus says there's going to be, it's going to be tied up, and here's where it is. How many know God has soup? He, he's omniscient, all-knowing. He saw that donkey. There was a purpose for that donkey. He recognized that donkey was tied up. Let me tell you something. There's a picture for us. There's a metaphor in this whole process. How many know he recognizes and sees you in, when you're all tied up? You're bound, you feel useless, you feel bound by circumstances, or you, you, you're, in a, you're tied up with some, something the enemy's put on you. Come on. Jesus sees you, and you say, I'm not even able to do this thing. I don't know what my purpose is, and maybe that's how you, is that how God found you? Because that's how he found me. I was all tied up in my sin. I was all tied up in my bondage. I was all tied up in a, in, in a life that was away from him and his purpose. So he says, go and release him. Release him. So he not only sees us in our captivity. Come on. Jesus' first sermon, when he opened up the book of Isaiah, and he begins to preach out of Isaiah in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he's what? Anointed me to set the captives free, to set the prisoners at liberty. He recognizes us, then he releases us from the captivity. He sends somebody into our life who will be a messenger who will come and preach liberty to us. Thank God 
for that person. Thank God that Rodney was there for his coworker. Come on. An assignment that took 25 years in the making. Released. Then he says, bring the cult to me. Bring the cult to me. And, this, and it says in the other accounts that this was a cult who had never been ridden. Never been ridden. And that cult was about to discover its design, its divine purpose. Bring this cult to me. Not only did Jesus see it, not only did Jesus send somebody to help release it, how many know God wants to use you to help release some people? But he said, bring it to me. And that's what God does in our lives. He releases us, then he brings us to him for purpose. You know, when he calls his disciples in Mark chapter 3, it says that he called them forth so that they could be with him. Yes, he loved training them and, and preparing them, but most importantly, what they gleaned was from being with him. So he redeems us from a life of no purpose, a life of being tied up and sets us free. And he buys us, he's purchased us with his blood. He, we've been bought with a price, come on. We don't belong to ourselves, we belong to him. We are his purchase possession. And then this unbroken colt was brought to Jesus and he was going to sit on it. And how many know the moment that he sat on that colt, it, it went, came under the rule and the authority of the king. It came under the rule and the authority of the king. And that's a picture of our lives when we submit to him. Some of us have been recognized. Some of us have been released. Some of us have even come to Jesus, but we've yet to submit to his full lordship and say, I wanna, I wanna take you where you need to go, Lord. He was ruled, he was recognized, he was released, he was redeemed, but he was ruled. And lastly, you need to know this, if God can use a donkey, I don't know what excuse you've come up with, come on, I don't know what excuse you've come up with that I'm no useful, I'm not useful to God, I don't know that he could ever use somebody like me, but if God can use a donkey, he can use you. And how many know nobody's looking at the donkey? They're looking at who's on the donkey. And when you carry the king of kings into a situation or circumstance, they're looking at him. That's what we hope, at least. Amen? We read on, verse 4, it says, This took place to fulfill. Somebody say fulfill. What was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Turn to somebody and say, Your king is coming to you. Gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. 
Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. But first, he starts off saying, this took place to fulfill. All through the book of Matthew, we see Matthew is the book of the king. Matthew is written to the Jews to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah, the king, of king, the king they've been waiting for. Pointing to the scriptures that lay out and prophesy hundreds and thousands of years before who he would be and who, what he would do. And he says, this was done to fulfill that. Scripture and the prophetic words. Israel had been given a promise that a Messiah, the king, was coming to them and that he was not someone else's king. He says, your king is coming to you. See, they had had kings come in. Come on. They had had Romans take over. They were under another authority. But he said, your king is coming. So there was this expectation of the king coming. I wonder what happens when the church gets hold of this expectation of the king coming. It changes everything in our lives. And we look at the prophecy from Zechariah that Matthew quotes, and he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just he, and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, God had need of a donkey so the prophetic promise could be fulfilled. See, even in our obedience, there's prophetic implications. I, I wonder if, going back to the assignment thing, we understood maybe God asked you in the parking lot, go help that lady out with her groceries getting in the car. And you're like, well, that seems insignificant. Lord, is that a gopher? But then you help, them with the, you help her with the groceries, and all of a sudden a conversation ensues. And all of a sudden, in the midst of that conversation, she begins to share with you problems in her life, challenges she's facing in her family. And because you, like the donkey, are carrying the king, Amen. come on, Amen. you have an opportunity to bring the king, the triumphal entry, into that circumstance or situation that seemed insignificant, but now could change the entire trajectory of that woman's life. The significance in the promise. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, there's some family members who've been praying for that lady. And they've been saying, Lord, would you send some spirit filled, filled with the fire of God donkey with the king of kings on his, on his back into her situation. And would you reveal yourself to her? And you become the answer to that. Isaiah, this was also part of Isaiah's prophecy where he said, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Amen. Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold. And I know lo means something else, but he came lowly. Behold his reward. See, you'll miss him if, we're, if you're looking too high. 
looking at other things. And his reward is with him and his recompense before him. You see the significance of the promise. He was bringing the reward. And the reward would be his salvation, his deliverance, sozo for this nation. Listen to this, though. Not only were these prophecies fulfilled, but Daniel gives a prophecy of 70 weeks, 490 years. And the theologians have gone back and they've looked at the calendars and they've said it came down to that specific day. That specific day that Jesus would enter the city was prophesied and fulfilled. There's significance in the promise. And you see, John records in in verse 16 of chapter 12, he says, these things his disciples did not understand at the first. Okay? But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. You see, the understanding came after the obedience. Don't you wish it was that simple, parents? Come on. But why? But why? But why? <laughs> Come on. Sometimes it's disciples, but why, God, are you asking me to do that? Why, 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 why? No, no, if you just do this, the understanding will come after the obedience. We see the prophetic fulfillment of Jesus being our king all throughout this book. I want you to see something too, though. Because he's faithful to fulfill his word and he's faithful to fulfill his promise and the prophetic words, guess what? The soon and coming king is going to fulfill his promise again. But see, he's, he's not coming on a donkey. He's coming on a white horse. And this time, he's not coming to be the suffering servant who dies. He's coming to conquer his enemies. He's, he is faithful and true, and he's coming to judge in righteousness, and he will wage war. He will be clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his armies on white horses will be following him. Come on, this will be the true and victorious triumphal entry as he comes and he establishes his kingdom on earth. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and he will fulfill his word. Not only can you trust that, but you can trust him this morning. When he gives you the rhema word and he prophetically speaks into your life, he will fulfill it. He's coming. Significance in the promise. Next, we see the significance in the procession. These coats, they be, Matthew records that the disciples began to put their coats on both the donkey and the mother on which Jesus would sit on, and then the others put their coats down on the road before him, before them. And this signified their willingness You see, because Jesus didn't instruct them. As far as I can tell, there was no instruction to do that. It was a response to who he was as king. They laid their coats down. They laid their coats down. And in ancient times, Eastern culture, laying down of the coats was a way of welcoming the gods during a crisis, or it was a way of acknowledging the triumphs when a conquering general marched 
through the city showing off his captives and trophies. Wiseman, in his commentary, says, the act of spreading out the garment was one of recognition, loyalty, and promise of support. Is it not a picture of us coming before the king and laying down our lives? It's a picture of surrender. I've been reading a lot about different revivals in history, and there's a man by that young man by the name of Evan Roberts that just an incredible testimony in his life. Early 1900s, a young man, young people, who at the age of 13, at the age of 13 began to pray two things. Fill me with the Holy Spirit and bring revival to Wales. Both of them were answered. But the motto of this young man's life as he began to be an agent of revival throughout his nation was this. He says, bend the church win the world. Bend the church. This laying down is a bending before the king. True surrender. He wants to enter, but he needs somebody to lay down their life. To unself. To un self. He would go on in John chapter 12 and he would say those who seek to save their lives will lose them but those who lose their lives for my sake will find them. What are we so afraid of? What do we got to gain? What does it profit a man to gain this world but lose their soul? Come on. What are we holding on to? But what can God do with a bent church? I wonder what happens if the church in Snohomish County and Linwood and Mount Lake Terrace and South Everett and this area would begin to be bent. What would happen if we laid our coats before him and saw the significance? He was riding on a donkey and this, this signified his royalty. See, it was common for kings in that day and their families to ride donkeys rather than horses. But see, riding a donkey meant it was a time of peace. It was a time of peace. It signified that he was not just a king, but that he was the king of peace. And this was a stark contrast to the triumphal entries they had seen in Roman times. With all the pomp and power and display, their victories... They're displaying their strength, their power, the authority, marching through in processions, conquering kings would come with their shoulders behind them. It was quite a scene, but this was something different. That's why the Roman authorities probably go, there's nothing here. There's nothing here. Nothing to see. No threat to us. And see, he would later explain that week as he stood before Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is it's a different kind of kingdom because he's a different kind of king. 
Would they recognize him, the gentle and meek one, the prince of peace, who reigns in righteousness and peace and joy. See, through his death and through his sacrifice, the Bible says in Colossians that he has reconciled all things to himself. See, and he's, had, he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. We're to be peacemakers. Those who are under this king's authority are to be those who go forth and be peacemakers. Yes, we war with principalities and powers, and we war not, but we don't war with flesh and blood. Come on, church. He's the king of peace. But it signified his purpose to serve. You know, the 10th day of Nisan, the Jewish month, the Sunday before Passover, was the day in which the Paschal lamb was selected for the sacrifice. Get this. It was this day that Jesus chose to make himself known. How could you miss it? John the Baptist, when he came, showed up at the River Jordan, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb was selected for the sacrifice, the Lamb slain from the foundations of the world. Mark 10, 45 says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for what? For many. He was the servant king. Isaiah the prophet in chapter 53, suffering servant, says, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Do you know the donkey represents a beast of burden? It bore other people's burdens. Jesus bears our burdens. Jesus bears our grief. He bore our sorrow. He's acquainted with them. Why would we continue to carry it when he's carried it, cast it on him? See, his purpose was to serve, but his mission was to save. And see, it signified his mission as well. They anticipated that he would rescue Israel. How many know some in that crowd that were lifting some praise that day had some other ideas? That he would rescue Israel from Roman rule and he would make Israel great again as a nation. That, but that was not his mission. He says in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, before this account, he says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. He knew his purpose, he knew his mission, and it was revealed in this moment. And when you talk about this journey, Bethphage was about, some say about two miles from Jerusalem, and they went up this big incline up the Mount of Olives. As they got up there and they got to the smooth rock, they could look down and they could see the city of Jerusalem. And from that vantage point, it says Jesus looked on the city and he cried. There was significance in his tears. While they were praising and while they were celebrating and while they were having a moment, he was having another moment. Where he cried over the city and he said, if you had recognized your time 
of visitation. If you had recognized it. Maybe they thought they did, but they didn't understand why he was coming to visit. There was significance in his tears. Matthew 21, verse 9, we continue. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Somebody say it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred. Come on, when Jesus shows up, things get stirred up. When Jesus shows up, things get stirred up. I hope you're stirred up this morning because he's in the house and the king is coming. And their response in the city was, who is this? Who is this? And let me tell you, when God begins to move in a community, that is the question. Church, are we ready to answer it? Just like he asked, Pastor Sam preached so great last week about that moment in Matthew 16 when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? That's not just a profession. That's a life testimony. My life speaks to who he is. Does it? Four, there was, lastly, there was significance in the praise when these things were stirred up. I want you to see something that says, the crowd said, who is this? And this kind of sounds like something the psalmist David said. In Psalm 24, he said, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. Who is this man? Who is this humble king? I'm sure they read that and they had the vision of armies. And Lord of hosts, which will be the second time. But this time, Dr. James Boyce in his commentary says, ancient rabbinical sources tell us that in the Jewish liturgy, Psalm 24 was always used in worship on the first day of the week. The first day of the week is our Sunday. So putting these facts together, we may assume that these were the words being recited in the temple on that day. Lift up your heads, O gates, and let the King of glory come in. Who is this King of glory? He's the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors. Come on. We need to declare this in our families. We need to declare this in our city. We need to declare this in our neighborhood. We need to declare this in our workplace. Lift up your heads, O gates. Let the King of glory come in. As they're singing, he's showing up on a donkey. What a scene. Then there was the palms. It says that the crowd, there was two crowds that converged. Some went before him, some went behind him. And there was the crowd of those who had been impacted by the testimony of Lazarus' resurrection. Then those in the city who had heard he was coming. So they're coming together. These crowds are coming together, if you can see the picture. And, and the Bible says that on the way they began to cut branches of palms. And you see there's significance in these palms because carrying palms and other branches was emblematic, emblematic of victory and success. Little did they know, little did that crowd know that 
the type of victory or success he was going to bring. Because to man's eyes, what would happen that week until the next Sunday, come on, looked like failure. That crowd on that day who was shouting Hosanna dispersed and was shouting crucify him later. Let me tell you what, crowds are fickle. Crowds are fickle. We aren't here to play to the crowd. Disciples need to be loyal. Disciples are loyal. Crowds are fickle, but disciples are loyal. Laying down their coats. And they sing Hosanna to the King of Kings. As they cried out Hosanna, they were crying out from Psalm 118, 25, 29. I'm going to read that. Almost closing, I promise. Oh Lord, do save. We beseech you, O Lord. We beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Can we bless him this morning from the house of the Lord? The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. The festival sacrifice, that would be him. You are my God and I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Come on, church. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. You know, see, you see, they, they sang Hosanna, which is to say it's both a prayer and a praise. Save us now, we beseech you. Now why? Save us from Roman rule, maybe, some of them. Which is to us, save us from our circumstance. There's some hosannas to get us out of our circumstance, are there not? Which is good, but he wants far more than that. Because if we're just singing hosanna when our circumstances aren't what they should be, Many who live there only sing Hosanna in those moments. My Bible says to rejoice in the Lord always. <laughs> the Old Testament, there was willow trees too, and those were for those were for grief. Right? For bad days. Then there's palm, palms were for good days. Right? There's palm days, there's willow days, there's different days. But every day we rejoice in him. Every day we rejoice in him. And I want you to see the exuberance, the significance of their praise. We could learn something from this. Church, if we want to live a life of victory... I'm telling you, you can be in victory even when circumstances are falling apart. <laughs> when you get hold of this, and I'm telling you, I'm being tested in this. Come on, we got to learn this together. I'm with you. You need to learn how to do some radical praise when everything in you tells you not to. 
I said you need to learn to do some radical praise when all your circumstances and everything going on in your life are shouting to you to do otherwise. That is the time it becomes a sacrifice of praise, a thanksgiving, a hosanna in the middle of it. In the good days and the bad days, we've got to praise him. You'd be around some of these people who like to shout it out. Maybe some of you get uncomfortable with that. But then you show up at, you show up at, uh, what's that crazy climate pledge arena? What a weird name. Oh my goodness. Lord help us. Jesus. Hosanna. Save us. I'm sorry. I, I mean, I love the planet, but we don't worship the creation. We worship the creator. I don't know if this Pastor John, my dad was telling me a story of this guy in his church. He was very mild-mannered during worship. He was like, And he said, hey, I, I noticed you don't, you don't really praise very much. And I was like, well, that's just, that's my personal. I'm just kind of a laid back kind of guy. And he got invited to a sporting event. <laughs> and he showed up and he couldn't find this guy. Couldn't find him. It's unrecognizable because he was painted. <laughs> and he was shouting, that can't be him. That can't be him. Oh, come on. Somebody's getting a little uncomfortable right now, but that can't be him. I've never seen that guy before. That can't be this guy. I'm come on, you got some praise on this morning. It was good. But let me tell you what the power of praise, the significance of praise, when you get a hold of this, because praise blesses God. Praise helps you get your eyes off your circumstance and your issues. And the Bible says, come, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Because when we're looking at the circumstances, and I got stuck there this week. I'm just confessing this morning. I got stuck looking at some circumstances. But this morning we got into praise and my head just went up and that thing seemed like no longer an issue. Come on. <laughs> magnify him, not magnify the circumstance. That doesn't mean we deny reality. We just, we just accept the reality of who he is and we begin to declare that. He is. And so these Pharisees were a little bit bothered. They're a little bit bothered. And they're like, hey, you just need to quiet it down. You're a little bit radical. Can you tell your, can you tell your disciples to chill? Because radical praise not only helps you, it, it, it really, really makes religious devils mad. My Bible talks about there's a shout in the camp of the righteous that makes the enemy's camp begin to shake. There's a shout. So I wonder if 
Not only Sunday could be significant, but every day could be significant. Because we're beginning to see the significance of the assignment. I'm not just going to work today. My life is not insignificant. I'm just not just going here to earn a paycheck, but I'm walking in here with the King of Kings on my back. Come on. I'm not just going to the grocery store. I'm not just going to my campus, young people. I'm walking in carrying the King of Kings and his presence with me. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna make some people uncomfortable with my praise because, because when I do, it changes and, and, and affects the atmosphere where I'm at. How many know the principalities of the air don't like that praise because then, then God's presence becomes comes because he says he inhabits the praises of his people and the king of kings begins to ride on your praise into the circumstance and the circumstance begins to shift. People's lives are transformed. So Jesus' response to the religious elite. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Ha-ha. Come on, you got an advocate even against the religious folk. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, Pastor Sam quoted it, the stones will cry out. Somebody's got to praise him. Can you stand with, to your feet this morning? And in closing, I want to read this to you, that what was the significance of the triumph on that day? Adam Clark writes this. He says, The entry into Jerusalem has been termed the triumph of Christ. It was indeed the triumph of humility over pride. And worldly grandeur of poverty over affluence and of meekness and gentleness over rage and malice. My Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8 that he became poor, that we might become rich in him. He who knew no sin became sin meaning he was treated as a sinner so that we might be treated righteous that we might be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus I don't that's something to praise him about I don't if you're feeling all tied up this morning Jesus wants to break those binds. You feel stuck. You feel without purpose. That Jesus wants to come and redeem your life. He takes what the enemy meant for harm and he turns it for good. He, he restores the years that the canker worm has eaten, the locusts have eaten, the swarming locusts have eaten. He takes those years and he, he, he makes something out of them. He is, he is a God who restores. He takes our ashes 
and gives us the oil of joy for mourning. He wants to take your life and he wants to ride in on it. He wants to make your life about triumphal entries wherever you go. Wherever you go. He wants to take what is so seemingly insignificant and show you the significance of who you are in him. And by virtue of that, the significance of what happens when you walk on the scene. That the King of Kings is riding in on you. His presence. Oh yeah, we're nothing but donkeys, but we're carrying the King. We're not in, we have a significant mission. We have a significant reason to live. We have a significant purpose to accomplish. We have a significant mission in this time. So I don't know how you need to respond this morning, but there is a, I believe we need to grab hold of faith this morning. That was the word Pastor John brought. There's faith. There's faith in this place to receive. There's faith in this place to begin to see from his perspective, to begin to see beyond the day-to-day and see his glory revealed in and through our lives. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Can you lift your hands for a moment? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we worship you. We say, Hosanna. Hosanna. Come on, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, our cry this morning, that you would bend us, lay down our lives before you, Lord, that you might come to make a way for you to come into our world, into our situations. I don't know about you. That's you this morning. You need to really, I feel like there's just a, a call to surrender. There's a call to full surrender, something you've been holding back. Something you've been holding back. Let him bend you this morning. Unself us, Lord. Lord, this morning we repent of our selfishness, our self-centeredness, our self-seeking God. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. And Lord, we submit to your lordship this morning. We, your church, surrender our all. We throw down our coats. We lay before you, Lord. Come on, church, there's more. There's more. If you need to surrender, do it. Do it now.